Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul was a brazen act, which one must assume was orchestrated at the highest levels of the Saudi government, meaning, of course, the royal family. Whether or not Mohammed bin Salam, the crown prince, was complicit will continue to be debated, as is also how the United States should respond. Joining me to discuss this is someone who I'm honored to call my boss. As Ambassador Robert Jordan is the vice chair of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, as well as the diplomat in residence and adjunct professor at the Tower Center at Southern Methodist University, as well as being a director of the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. Appointed by George W. Bush, Jordan served as ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2001 to 2003. In fact, his confirmation process was expedited to enable him to lead the sensitive negotiations that took place immediately post 9-11. He is the author of Desert Diplomat, a book that I highly recommend. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Jim. You have described recently our relations with Saudi Arabia as being at their lowest point since the 9-11 attacks. The official Saudi position is now that the murder of Jamal Khosrowji, while premeditated, was not authorized by the Crown Prince. Knowing Saudi Arabia as well as you do, is that even possible? I think it's very unlikely. Uh, And I think uh, every analyst that I'm aware of who has been asked this question in the month since this murder has come to the same conclusion, including most recently uh, Martin Dempsey, who served uh, as our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, I just saw a few days ago that Prince Ahmed, who is 75 years old, he's a full brother to King Salman, returned to Saudi Arabia from his self-imposed exile in London. First, why was he in London? And secondly, what does it mean that he has uh, come back to Saudi Arabia? Well, he had expressed some dissent from the way in which uh, a number of journalists and other dissenters within the kingdom had been treated. And so I think he probably felt that he would be safer in London. Uh, Do you know when he went? It's not been all that long. So perhaps before, right after all the people were in the Ritz-Carlton? He had served briefly, I think in 2012, as Minister of Interior. Uh, He was then elbowed aside so that uh, his nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, could come in and become Minister of Interior. Frankly, Mohammed... Uh, was a much better qualified individual. Now, the rumor about Prince Ahmed was that he was not much of a hands-on manager. Uh, He had served as Deputy Minister of Interior for a long time in mostly an administrative role, so I rarely interacted with him. I focused mostly on the counterterrorism side of it with Prince Mohammed bin Nayef. At any rate, it's not entirely clear how he came back or under what circumstances. Uh, there's been one train of thought that has suggested that uh, he is there to make a showing of family unity and to support his brother the king. There's also another train of thought that says that he is there to meet with the senior family council to decide whether they wish to continue with Mohammed bin Salman as the crown prince or perhaps put uh, some restrictions on him uh, because not simply... Uh, the murder of J- Jamal Khashoggi uh, is 
uh, at his feet, but also the incarceration of so many family members uh, in the Ritz-Carlton, uh, the war in Yemen, the blockade of Qatar, the incarceration of the Prime Minister of Lebanon, and on and on, uh, incarceration of dissenters. Lots of policy missteps. Just about everything he has touched has been a disaster. And so I think the senior members of the royal family uh, are very concerned about this. But what I don't really understand is when you look at Saudi Arabia's history, the royal family really ruled by consensus. How was MBS able to really just grab this total control? Who, who gave him the authorization to do that, or, or was he just that crafty to pull it off? Most likely his father gave him license to do it, and there was enough inertia in the senior ranks of the royal family that he was able to pull it off. Uh, when he first became deputy crown prince, he was given the portfolio of every domestic agenda in the kingdom, as well as being named Minister of Defense at age 29. And so he had these uh, instruments of power at his disposal. He was then able to fire most of the heads of the military branches and the National Guard and install his own people. And so he was able to insulate himself in a way from uh, blowback when he then made his power grab, uh, most obviously at the Ritz-Carlton uh, a year ago. You would have thought there'd been some caution lights. Correct, you would have thought so. Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, who preceded him as Crown Prince, was well-respected. I worked with him closely. He was probably the most knowledgeable counterterrorism figure in the Middle East. And how East. old is he? He's probably 62 or three. Okay. Uh, he would be a cousin of Mohammed bin Nayef. Uh, and uh, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Nayef's father was the long-serving Minister of Interior and a, uh, a brother of King Salman. Now, you knew Jamal Khosoji. Slightly, yes. We, we met on a number of occasions. Uh, I liked him. I found him uh, measured. Uh, he was not a bomb thrower. Yeah, is there anything to, to justify some of the reports that have been in the media about him being an Islamic extremist or not espousing moderation? Uh, no, quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, he was opposed to extremism. He had flirted with the Muslim Brotherhood as a young man. During the campaign against the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, in the early 80s, he was embedded with some of the jihadis led by Osama bin Laden. Uh, and recall that the Saudis and the Americans were funding that operation, 50-50 at that time. So under the later Carter and then early Reagan administrations, uh, we were actually funding this operation. And so it wasn't as if he was uh, some terrorist off the rails here. He was an embedded journalist sure. with these people. Uh, that's as close as I think you can get to suggesting that he had uh, flirted with or consorted with uh, extremist elements. During the time I dealt with him, uh, he was very concerned about Islamic extremism within Saudi Arabia, the extreme Wahhabi intolerance mm -hmm. that he felt was dangerous for the kingdom. But he was very much a patriot and very much loved Saudi Arabia. So why was he viewed as such a threat? And you have talked about this a bit before. Why do you think they decided to kill him in a consulate? I mean, I understand, as you and I have talked about, that you know, not in the United States, uh, Jamal was not going to go back to Saudi Arabia, but why not just stage a robbery or a, a murder on the street? I think, in a way, uh, the Saudis had felt they had license uh, 
uh, particularly after the Rich Carlton episode in November of 2017. Um, there was very little pushback to the incarceration of several hundred royal family members and senior businessmen. Uh, there was no due process. There was no transparency. They kept promising transparency, which never occurred. Uh, a couple of uh, individuals uh, uh, were not accounted for and presumed either dead or missing. Mm -hmm. uh, some were tortured. And so uh, there was so little public blowback at that point that I think uh, uh, the Crown Prince may have felt empowered, uh, may have felt uh, a little uh, bit bulletproof and perhaps a sense of hubris, uh, which of course can uh, delude people into thinking they are bulletproof. So how much responsibility does the United States or the Trump administration bear? I think you could make an argument uh, that we have uh, insufficiently expressed uh, our concerns for the way in which this crown prince is imposing reforms on the kingdom. Uh, we have been pleased with some of the results and some of the objectives, but we have cast a blind eye to the means by which he has achieved power and has exercised that power. You know, last night I looked on, I admit, Wikipedia and then the State Department site to see the list of, the long list of U.S. ambassadors to Saudi Arabia. And with few exceptions, most of them have been political appointees, although there have been like Jim Atkins and a few other foreign service officers. Um, why does Saudi Arabia prefer a political appointee? And in reality right now, is Jared Kushner not the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia? The Saudis in modern history have uh, always insisted that the U.S. ambassador not be a career foreign service officer. They want someone who is a friend of the president, who can go over the heads of the bureaucracy, can get the White House on the phone, uh, and does not have a career to protect. And so that was the role I played and the role that most of my recent success, uh, predecessors have played as well. What about Jared Kushner's role? I, I think it's a fair comment that he's probably as close to an ambassador as we've had over the last two years. Uh, but of course, he's not on the ground daily. Uh, he is not remotely uh, schooled and the things an ambassador uh, or any real public senior public servant. And who does he report to? And who does he report to? Uh, and who does he, uh, what record is made of the conversations he's had uh, from an institutional standpoint? How does an embassy or a State Department keep track of the kinds of contacts and communications that he has had? Uh, it's very important to have a repository of records on what these kinds of conversations and communications have been, particularly if there are commitments made by either side. And it's not just that we don't have an ambassador there and waiting for a confirmation, the position is vacant. There's been no nomination and there's been no announcement of any intent to nominate, which is the first step. Uh, we hear names occasionally suggested, but these they then fade into the ether uh, after a period of weeks or months. Uh, we also, by the way, don't have an ambassador in Turkey, which would have also been important in this particular case. So Saudi Arabia is the number one purchaser of U.S. weapons, and there's been some discussion now in Congress, serious discussion, that the U.S. should cancel or at a minimum postpone some of the sales. President Trump has singled quite vocally his opposition to that, saying that so many jobs would be impacted. Um, and that the Saudis would be able to buy weapons from uh, other, other countries. Where do you stand on this, and what other measures, if, if you were 
ambassador now, not sure President Trump would listen to you, but what measures would you recommend? Well, I have been very vocal in saying that we at least need to hit the pause button on uh, arms sales to the Saudis at the present time. Uh, there are no critical path arms sales that are in the pipeline right now, uh, perhaps other than a sale by Lockheed Martin of helicopters, which is about a $6 billion contract. So this $150 billion or whatever is not a, a it, good number? It is not real at all. There are memorandums of intent out there for various packages, but those are not enforceable contracts. And these kinds of contracts take months, if not years, to negotiate. Uh, they are very tough to negotiate, and in, in many cases, they are never consummated because the parties can't come to a final agreement. Um, that likely would occur in at least some of these contracts right now, and the number of jobs uh, at issue uh, are probably more in the uh, thousands than in the hundreds of thousands. Hmm. Uh, I have time just for one more question, and I'd love for you to talk about Yemen. Um, just in the last few days, both Secretary of Defense uh, Jim Mattis as well as Secretary of State Pompeo have said that they would like to see discussions in, around the table for first a ceasefire and then peace to discussions and to at least to try to end this war of the Saudi-led coalition. Do you see any likelihood of that happening? Well, they both said this in the past occasionally as well, but I think they have made more of a concerted effort this time. And I think it's perhaps animated by the leverage that I hope they feel uh, as a consequence of the Khashoggi matter. Um, and yes, uh, it is essential that uh, the international community led by the United States uh, take a firm position uh, that this is a war that needs to be ended and that the United States is no longer willing to supply uh, munitions, mid-air refueling, reconnaissance, and intelligence uh, at least until there's a better understanding of the political objective involved and how it can be, be achieved with a minimum a degree of civilian casualties, which is simply not happening right now. I mean, now. it's considered now as perhaps will be one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters. Not just a humanitarian disaster, but there's uh, an argument that war crimes are being committed actually by both sides uh, in the conflict. By the blockades? By the well, by the blockade, but also by the indiscriminate bombing of civilian populations. Mm -hmm. uh, this bombing of a bus full of 45 school children a couple of weeks ago is a good example of that. And the Houthis themselves have uh, uh, committed atrocities. So this is a conflict that has to be brought to an end, ideally with the United Nations uh, mediation. A ceasefire would achieve that objective right now. And uh, there, has to have, there has to be some kind of vision, though, for the day after the conflict ends, what do you do with the Houthis? What kind of political rights do they have? How do they participate in the government? Some who have said the Houthis really have no interest in participating now, in the government. So how much backing do they really get from Iran? Initially, very little at all. Uh, they are not literally Shia. They are an offshoot of Shiism, and it's not particularly a religious war. This is a tribal conflict that has persisted now for many, many years. When the Houthis were able, surprisingly, to capture Sana'a, uh, Iran then took notice and said, well, this is something we can invest in for a minimal investment and really give the Saudis a hard time. And that's pretty much what has happened here. And the Saudis have not had the military capability, human capital, training, uh, and resolve uh, to be effective militarily. They've relied somewhat on the United Arab Emirates also to provide 
uh, mercenary soldiers, uh, but it is, uh, it's a dead end for them right now. Bob Jordan, thank you so much for being with us. Again, Ambassador Jordan is the author of Desert Diplomat, Inside Saudi Arabia Following 9-11. I really do recommend it. You wrote this book about, what, four years ago uh, or so? 2015, three years 20, ago. Three years ago. There's a lot in it that is still very current, especially when you're trying to figure out the various characters in the royal yeah. family. Thanks again. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.